Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. After a relatively quiet period, there was a little more news to chew on this week. Less on the results front, more in the form of further instalments in the general wave of consolidation that's working its way across the investment trust sector, following the big derating of the last 18 months. After discussing that, I will be sharing a segment from a fascinating longer conversation I had recently with Ben Rogoff, the manager of the Polo Capital Technology Trust, on the subject of artificial intelligence, or AI, seemingly every investor's favourite topic of the day, and a key factor in the strong performance of the US equity markets this year. Why has it become such a hot topic and what are the implications for investors? Is it all hype or simply the result of our seeing the next great revolution in the history of technological change emerging before our eyes? I'm sure you'll find uh, lots of interest in Ben's characteristically enthusiastic, but I think fair-minded assessment of the subject. This week's profile for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle is JP Morgan European Discovery. And you'll also find there our usual list of all the latest RNS announcements involving investment trusts and the biggest price, NAV and discount movers of the week. I've also listed 10 investment trusts that I think offer particular upside if we start to see a reversal of the derating that has been driven by falling interest rates. In the markets, investors continue to debate and speculate on that likely path of where interest rates go from here, taking into account both the rate of inflation and the spectre, which seems to be growing a little bit stronger by the day, of a global economic slowdown. This week, that was heightened by a notable rise in the price of oil and related energy commodities. However, London equity markets in the form of the FTSE 100 and the All Share were up a fraction on the week. But that was better than the uh, falls observed in the US equity markets. S&P down 1% and NASDAQ down a short 2% respectively. And also Japan and Europe both down a little more than the UK market. Gilts again followed the recent trend with some price gains in five to eight year maturities uh, matched by falls in most longer dated issues. Gross redemption yields continue to fall in a range between roughly four and a quarter percent and 5%. Turning to the investment trust sector, the investment company's index, which comprises some 170, 180 of the trusts that are in the FTSE All Share Index, was down just over a quarter of 1% on the week, which makes it down 4% over the year to day, excluding dividends. Losers outnumbered gainers by a small margin, however. Significant gains were recorded by Roundhill Music, ticker RHM, following a large premium agreed bid from an American company. More on that in a moment and by Vietnamese trusts, among others. While on the loser's side, we saw weakness in social infrastructure names, among others deemed to be most sensitive still to higher interest rates. The most recent monthly property and infrastructure reviews from Winterflood Securities uh, underlined how discounts on both asset classes continue to track the movement in gilt yields. It's almost a one-to-one correlation, uh, which implies, of course, that there well may be some opportunities 
arising from inadequate differentiation between different names in those sectors. The spread between UK 10-year gilt yields and the Investment Trust UK Commercial Property Peer Group, says Winterfell, has widened from 294 basis points uh, to 304 basis points, or just over 3%, over the past month. And this compares with the average spread of 367 basis points over the last 15 years. So in other words, the spread difference is still not as wide as it has been on average over the recent decade and a half. Following last week's discussion of the challenges posed to investment trusts by onerous and unnecessary cost disclosure regulations, Ben Conway's critical comments prompted a strong and almost universally positive reaction when I posted a link to the Moneymakers interview on social media. It's worth noting also this week uh, comments published by Quilter Cheviat, the wealth management firm, which recently completed what it calls an extensive round of consultation with investment trusts looking to engage with them on the subject of corporate governments and investment trust behaviour. As part of this process, Quilter Cheviat says it's met with the chairs and non-executive directors of 41 equity investment trusts. It found most, but not all, of these boards were open to constructive challenge and discussion. It provided each investment trust with a red, amber or green rating on three criteria, board composition, board effectiveness and disclosures on environmental, social and governance factors. Only three out of the 41 investment trusts qualified for a green rating on all three of those categories, while two received a red rating across the board. No names are disclosed here, however. The category with highest percentage green rating was a board effectiveness at 70%, while around two-thirds of the board's achieved a green rating, a positive rating for composition and effectiveness. The most common reason for getting a red rating was failure to meet the UK diversity targets, that's both for women and other racial groups, uh, the presence of non-independent directors or one or more directors serving over the recommended tenure of nine years with no current plans to resolve this, suggesting a lack of succession planning or perhaps not agreeing with the nine-year limit might be fair to add. So turning to the news, the bid for Roundhill Music Royalty, ticket RHM, helped to boost the performance of a number of alternative asset trusts, including most dramatically its much larger peer, Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker Song. Roundhill Music Royalty has received and accepted and recommended a bid from an American music specialist company called Concord, which puts the price on RHM shares of $1.15, which is a... uh, Hefty 67% premium to the closing share price before the announcement, but still a discount to the $1.30 most recent NAV put out by the company. I said the board is recommending the deal and the CEO of Roundhill Music says he'll be voting his shares in favour of the deal. In fact, 33% of shareholders by votes have already given undertakings to support the bid, but that requires a 75% vote in favour at an EGM, which will be held shortly. As with the Civitas social housing bid a few months ago, the obvious question is why the board is recommending a bid that, while well above the recent share price, is still below the last stated NAV, which the board signed off of on only a few weeks ago. In the real world, the wide and persistent discount at which the trust has been trading, and perhaps also reflecting a lack of consensus about the outlook for music royalties as a business, is not particularly well understood, I think. It seems likely that shareholders will take the money. The shares have duly risen by more than 60% to within a fraction of the agreed bid price of $1.15. Shares in Hypnosis Songs Fund are also up around 10% on the week following news of the bid. Hypnosis Songs Fund faces a continuation vote this month. Uh, I'm sure I don't need to remind you of that. 
and shareholders will doubtless be looking carefully at what the board has to say about its own future. For despite the share price increase this week, and there has been speculation about a possible bid for hypnosis as well, the trust still stands on a discount of more than 40% to its latest NAV. Elsewhere in the consolidation theme, Ecofin US Renewables, ticker RNEW, announced that following a strategic review by the board, it is planning to sell the company's assets and move into a managed wind-down. It said it made an approach to another company about a merger, but that failed to pull off an agreement there, and it also rejected an approach from another investment company to get together. Like some other trusts, Ecofin US Renewables suffers from being subscale, has a market cap of less than 100 million at the moment, and has been trading on a persistent discount. Since the IPO, it has underperformed the sector peer group as well, with a negative total return over that period. Uh, it's interesting, though, to contrast what the board of Ecovin US Renewables has said with the situation at US Solar Fund, ticker USF, another trust which recently completed its own strategic review and said that the current market backdrop was not conducive to a sale of its assets. Instead, it's proposing to appoint a new manager, Amber Infrastructure, which already manages another investment trust, and that is International Public Partnerships, one of the big social infrastructure trusts, which incidentally was in the news this week, helpfully clarifying that none of its schools or public buildings have been closed as a result of the structural problems that have been highlighted by the government. IMPP does own a lot of schools, as around 15% of the portfolio by value in schools in the UK, Australia, Canada and Germany. We also heard this week the discussions about a potential merger between two debt funds, GCP Infrastructure, ticker GCP, and RM Infrastructure Income, ticker RMII, have come to an end following consultation with advisors and shareholders on both sides. So no deal will be forthcoming, and the board of RM Infrastructure Income is now recommending a managed wind-down. The board says that it assessed a number of proposals to combine its assets with another investment company or fund, but it highlights that the potential combination proved, I quote, a much more complex process than initially envisaged, and there were differing views from shareholders about the merits of a combination. So a circular is going to be put out by the end of October this year to say what the Trust proposes to do now, and it will explore the possibility, it says, of offering a rollover into another fund that it manages if the end result is indeed this managed wind-down. Two high-profile trusts with private equity investments reported useful realisations this week. Caledonia Investments, ticker CLDN, which is backed by the Kayser family, effectively the Kayser family office, uh, announced the sale of its majority interest in Seven Investment Management, which many of you may know as uh, one of the more successful UK wealth management companies. The sale price represents a uplift of $54 million over the carrying value on the Caledonia Investments balance sheet and represents around uh, 2% of net assets. So a successful disposal of this business at a premium to its carrying value and it's been sold to the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, interestingly enough, which clearly sees value in developing in the UK retail wealth management space. Notable also though that uh, Caledonia said that the proceeds will be used for reinvestment rather than for other purposes such as debt repayment or share buybacks. This trust has made special dividend payments in the past, however, but no mention of that so far in this case. HG Capital has also agreed the sale of another of its investments, a European messaging solutions provider called Comify, which is being sold at an uplift of 32% to the 31st of March carrying value.
relatively small in the context of HG Capital, but the latest in a number of disposals by HG Capital, all of which have been at significant premiums to their carrying values. And in other news, we've heard from LXI REIT Advisors, the manager of LXI, and said it's appointed Alex McKeekin as CFO to succeed Freddie Brooks, whose resignation became effective at the start of this month. Home REIT, whose shares are suspended, you won't need reminding, has released another of what it plans to be a series of regular monthly updates. Its shares are suspended and it's not going to be able to complete the audit of its uh, annual results, it said, until at least the end of the year. But in this latest update, it did say that one of its largest tenants, uh, Supportive Homes, which has 209 properties in Home REIT's portfolio, representing about 11% of its rent demand, has gone into creditors' voluntary liquidation. And that means that Home will have some opportunity to re-tenant some of those properties or carry out other asset management initiatives as soon as possible. Turning next to Shihalian, the early stage private equity venture capital business, uh, ticker MNTN, uh, managed by Bailey Gifford, announced the terms of the conversion of its C shares uh, into ordinary shares. And that conversion formula will be that investors in the C share issue will receive 0.7% of an ordinary share for every C share that they own. And those uh, new shares will start trading on the 12th of September. A calculation based on comparative NAVs. And we also heard from Schroeder Capital Global Innovation, ticket INOV, which has obtained court approval so that it can cancel its share premium account, enabling it also to launch a share buyback program. There were also other updates from, among others, uh, AEW UK, the Commercial Property Trust, which has recycled $11.5 million into a new mixed-use asset. RTW Biotech Opportunities, where one of its portfolio companies has completed a new funding round at a higher valuation. And two of the battery storage trusts, Gresham House Energy Storage, ticker GRID, whose NAV debt was down a disappointing 6% in the second quarter, and Gore Street Energy Storage, ticker GSF, where the NAV was actually slightly up over the same period. Pantheon Infrastructure, ticker PINT, P-I-N-T, the Global Infrastructure Trust, has meanwhile committed to invest around $35 million in a battery storage and electric vehicle specialist called Zenobi. Turning to results, the only significant annual results uh, we heard this week were from Midwine International, ticker MWY, where, as you'll recall, the uh, manager, Simon Edelson, is leaving, he's retiring, and the board has decided not to continue the management contract with Artemis, where Simon Edelson worked the last few years, uh, but is moving it to Lazard's instead, where the trust will adopt Lazard's global quality growth strategy. And the annual report describes the reasons and the logic behind that move uh, and points out that uh, the Lazar strategy, while not well known, perhaps in the investment trust space, has delivered better returns than the MSCI World All Companies Index over the last 10 years. The board here has been busy buying back shares to defend the discount and has bought back 4.6% of its opening share capital during that uh, annual result period, and since the period end has bought back a further 6.8% of its uh, share capital. Always a risk when uh, a well-known and highly regarded manager retires or leaves that there will be some selling as fairly normal until the new management team has been able to become more familiar and demonstrate its uh, abilities. And finally, there were some interims from international public partnerships, the aforementioned INPP, where the NAV per share was down 2.4%, 
and its uh, latest update from Triple Point Social Housing, ticker SOHO, S-O-H-O, which reported an NAV per share gain of 2.1% over the latest six-month period, and from Apex Global Alpha, the private equity trust, where the NAV was already known, up 2.4% in euro terms. And that brings us to the end of this roundup. Now, AI. Ben Rogoff, as many of you know, has been the manager of Polo Capital Technology for many years. He's been involved in the management of the trust for well over a decade and is always an interesting and enlightening interviewee on the subject of technology trends. So I started by asking him when we sat down to talk about AI and also Polo Capital Technology Trust, from which this following segment is an extract, to explain to me why this sudden interest in AI. After all, the idea of AI has been around for a long time, but it's only this year that it's suddenly become such a, if I can use this word appropriately, sexy subject for investors. An overnight success that's been worked on for 70 years. And I think the, I mean, the excitement doesn't look misplaced. But, you know, the, the breakthroughs that we've seen in a particular field of AI, generative AI, I think are fairly mind-boggling. And people have um for a number of reasons we'll go into, been able to embrace AI in a way that really has been unavailable to the average punter, the average investor ever in the history of AI. AI has been, uh, you know, a computer science domain. It's been you know, stuff that's been waged between, well, probably a governmental or certainly in academic fields. And really it was only, let's say, seven or eight years ago that we started to see breakthroughs in sort of very narrow fields. We remember the story around Go and Chess, yeah. various different breakthroughs from the teams at DeepMind, primarily you know, now Google. And then ChatGPT happened, and all of a sudden, a few of the things that people have been expecting have really been shaken up. The first one was that AI would be able to do superhuman stuff in very narrow fields. That's been challenged profoundly by what OpenAI and now others are doing with large language models, a.k.a. foundation models, same thing. And what we've seen is that very, very quickly, it is possible for machines to take on somewhat superhuman capabilities across a myriad of fields. That's quite something and not part of what was the plan. So what has been a fairly linear progress, I mean, incredible, like, you know, solving computer games or solving well-played games and then moving into things like protein folding, you know, we were making very steady progress in, in AI. And then this transformer model, this transformer stroke allows language, stroke foundation, all the same thing. This new way of doing AI has really resulted in a sort of step change in its capability. And, and what, that's what this year is all about. It's not AI specifically. It's this breakthrough in generative AI around transformer models. That's what this is about. Can you just give us a definition for us, layman, about what a generative sure. transformer AI is? What is different about it? And why are people so excited about it? Well, the bad news is that what's different is that they require incredible amounts of compute. So the excitement around NVIDIA and other chip makers, particularly NVIDIA, because it dominates this market at the moment, is around this idea that the computational requirements of transformers are, you know, this is log scale stuff. Yeah. So not a little bit more than what we saw in 2015 or 16 that sold these narrow fields, but maybe a thousand, ten thousand times bigger, much, much bigger models. What do these models do? Just to be clear, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not an AI scientist. I am a lowly investor with a background in history. 
But what we've learned about transformers is that these are all neural networks. They're computers designed to ape the way that the brain works. And transformers are particularly focused on using natural language processing tasks. And what they do is they basically use maths to create a technique called self-attention, which basically means that the inputs into a model can be weighed to help them make better predictions. And the way that they're set up allows them to do many, many, many tasks at the same time. We would call that parallel processing. So not one thing at a time, but maybe 10 million things at a time. And what that allows them to do is handle much larger documents and to retain context. So to understand that, I don't know, a word, 17 words into a sentence is the key word that relates to the noun that you used earlier is very important. It means that it can mimic our understanding of natural language, human understanding of natural language. And also, the way this model is built means that it's able to get better and better as the model gets larger and as more parallel processing is being done. That hasn't been the case in the past. The more that you put into earlier models, the model's efficacy, if you like, has typically plateaued. That That's not true now. But the models, as they've got larger and larger, and the entirety of the Internet, let's say, has been loaded into one of these transformers, that essentially these very large foundation models have got a number of parameters. So parameters are hard to explain, but not variables in a model. But if you were tinkering with something mechanical, yeah. there would be all the things that you could tinker with. GPT-3.5, the model behind ChatGPT, has 175 billion parameters. Well, that's a big number. You went back to a world of the models that were around in 2015, 2016, you're talking about 10,000, 50,000. So yeah. we're moving from tens of thousands to billions and we don't know the number exactly, but GPT-4, which is the latest of the models coming out of OpenAI, Microsoft, OpenAI, really, is said to have a trillion. And so you can imagine, really, what, what's gone on is that something that was able to be trained out of Pac-Man has now been able to basically be trained on the entirety of human knowledge, actually, which right. um, is a big statement to make, but that is why we're excited. And, and then just to be clear, that's one part to this story. What's the second part of the story? The second part of this story is the change in user interface. Again, if you wanted to do AI back in 2016, you would have had to have been expert in programming languages. You still need to be to train models, but the audience, i.e. you and I, we can now type a question in natural language form into a computer that can decipher that question and understand what we mean, and in the follow-up questions, maintain the context of the previous question. So what would be a five-day itinerary in Bordeaux where I'm hoping to go? And they'll give you an itinerary. And then you can turn back and say, yes, but we're not that interested in museums. And right. it would say, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Well, we'll skip that day and do this. So, I mean, we're talking internet levels of excitement around well, what might this mean, or smartphone, or cloud compute. It, it's at that level. It may be more important to the tech industry because ultimately the ability to decipher natural language both in terms of the input and the output, has enormous scope. And GPT, you probably know, stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. But GPTs also mean, and there's some question about whether or not this is not accidental, mean general purpose technologies. And mm-hmm. excitement around AI is its ability or its potential to become the next general purpose technology, like steel, like the internet, like fire, and that's where the hyperbole starts to come in. 
one fact of that is that we've gone from whatever it was to a trillion, but that's not going to stop there, right? That can go on. And obviously, it's potentially, as you say, a log-scale expansion there. And it's, yes. is it right to say that, in effect, hey, I can't do anything that the human brain, in theory, couldn't do, but in practice, it means I can sort of speak to Einstein if I wanted to uh, kind of thing today about an issue that I wanted to speak to Einstein rather than to my primary school teacher or whatever it would be. So there's a few things. We can get into the kind of heavy stuff in a minute. I mean, we try to kind of get this out in the annual report. We've obviously built yeah. it around the AI theme, as you'd expect. We've touched on things like Greek systems of mathematics or early language models. Like, how do you convey, you know, the written word? I don't know, <laughs> the Rosetta Stone. This is that, it feels to us like there's a very large acceleration of knowledge transfer potential here. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, YouTube allowed me, sort of an ignoramus with bikes, to be able to change the tire. I mean, massively democratizing. So this is like a different level. Like you say, this is like you could ask a question on anything and get a very sensible answer back in a second. This has big, big impacts on knowledge work. You know, that go out and get a management consultant to lay out a SWOT analysis on a space because I'm interested in doing M&A. That's fine. That would have cost you 500 grand. I don't know what the number is. And it would have been better than ChatGPT. But, you know, is it 500 grand better? And do I want to wait a month for it or can I just get the answer in the second and a half? Like when you look at Goldman and some of the other guys out there, they're talking about 25% of knowledge work potentially at risk here. And of course, you've only just started. We're just at the beginning of this. And if you look at the model differences between GPT three and a half, which is chat GPT, and GPT four, it's an astonishing difference. Yeah. I mean, I've got some numbers here. And by the way, we're talking about a year roughly between the two models. And mm. one year, you go from basically something that can do 3,000 words and maintain context to now 6,000 words. And if you ask it to produce a code that would look like a Kandinsky, ChatGPT chucks out a whole bunch of circles, and GPT-4 throws out very interesting images that look a bit like a Kandinsky. So what's been amazing about this is that if you'd asked people 10 years ago, what jobs are going to be the safest ones from AI, they would have said, oh, creative jobs. A computer's never going to be able to produce art. Well, it can and it's never going to produce poetry. Oh, oh, it can. Write me three verses in the style of whoever you like, and the machine can do that. Is it useful for you? How might you use it as a fund manager? Let me give you a real example. The power that you need to do this is very severe and significant, and it's requiring a bit of a, we think, architectural shift again in compute, away from sort of a homogenous, mass-produced compute that the cloud gave us, you know, like cars, really, isn't it? Like cars used to be things that were judged on how fast they went in a straight line and what noise they made. And then they're getting judged now on what range they can give you. Yeah. Right. Same for compute in clouds. I don't really care how quick it is. I just need to know that per unit of compute, it's cheap or the power consumption is low. But this stuff is very intense compute. So anyway, cut long story short, we're doing some work in networking because for the first time since the 90s, there's potential for bottlenecks in the networking part of compute. Like they were in the 90s when we were all trying to get online for the first time. Because if I'm going to spend, I don't know, let's say $100 million with NVIDIA, it would be a real bugger if every time I was asking this array of AI compute that there was a bottleneck in the optical network. And I don't want to get into deep. For us to go out with a team of nine to go and look for names to play this theme takes time and to do the work. 
But we can go out now and use something like GPT-4, but also some of the more um, professional, you know, Bloomberg, but other, other things out there as well, that are laced with AI, that can go and look through all of the filings, all of the transcripts of calls that are being done every day, and look for references to generative AI, transformer models, the use for, I don't know, optical components, and it will find us in a couple of seconds, seven stocks to look at. I mean, it is a wow. And so this is where the excitement now, okay, we'll come back to the ways that we're trying to play in the portfolio. It's very early days. We know from the internet that even if you're right about this transforming the world, you can still be horribly wrong about stocks for extended periods of time. So this doesn't make those challenges any less trivial, but this idea of what could AI do too is up there with anything I've seen in my career. And that's why it's very easy to slip into that hyperbole, but, but possibly with reason. You know, like, that's the thing. I, I'm a massive believer. You've heard this over the years, Jonathan. Like, like, most of the time, nothing happens in life, you know. Uh, historians learn this pretty quickly. And, and as investors, we tend to try to not fall into the trap of hyperbole. We don't do early stage investing. We don't think that we found the only private company that's ever going to make it and be good. Like, most of the time, incumbency has real value. And it's really hard to catch up. Most of the time, the, the hyperbole is worthless, and we try to avoid hubris wherever we can. It's basically embedded into our investment process. And then something comes along that slightly challenges that, and AI is definitely in that camp at the minute. So just in terms of the market reaction first, though, the fact that Microsoft bought OpenAI, whatever it was, yeah. because it, it's going to need an awful lot of capital as well as everything else, is, that was the trigger, yes. was it? Or was it because very Microsoft expensive. went out and got yes, very excited? It, it was a trigger for the market. The, the big yeah. trigger was incredibly, actually. And, and you know, we had done some stuff, so it's not like we hadn't done anything. But ChatGPT came out in, I think, November, October, November last year. We were showing it to clients. We were taking you know videos of the input-output to like show them what this could do. And the market almost didn't care. NVIDIA stock was at lows, wasn't it, uh, in January or something. So the market took a while. And then, as you say, the catalyst was 49% of OpenAI bought by Microsoft for 10 billion or whatever the number was. And that was it. That's the catalyst. Now you can't ignore it. And then the second leg up was NVIDIA's ridiculous quarter. Yeah. The biggest beat in semiconductor history. Again, as an investor, you just can't. There's no position that your investors would understand why you didn't have a view on that. It's like a drug discovery, like you're seeing actually at the moment with Lilly and their drug discovery. They force investors to have a view. And the Microsoft NVIDIA 1-2 has taken AI into the mainstream as investors. But there are no profits yet. So is it going to make money for everyone? For those on the trade, we were on the trade and then we've added meaningfully to the AI theme. And then there's people that weren't on the trade who then, of course, create a narrative around the fact that we've moved too far too fast and all of that sort of stuff. But in the end, you can't really undo this. You know, that, those things happened. Now, you can take a spin that says open AI is loss-making, very loss-making. The path to revenues is highly uncertain, yeah. which I think is not an unreasonable statement. But that doesn't change the fact that we've just seen what a computer is capable of doing. And so I'm going back and thinking, like, if you look back at what the Internet did, the Internet democratized things that, and, and by the way, this would be true of the whole history of technology, wouldn't it? That the washing machine, I don't know, in 1955 or whenever the washing machine was invented, created technology that, you know, someone else is doing your washing is what would have been the preserve of the very rich yeah. in a hundred years earlier. And if you think about what Uber is, Uber is a fractional ownership of a chauffeur. 
Right, someone comes to your house, picks you up and takes you somewhere. That's a chauffeur. That's not a minicab. Right, just come here in three minutes and I need to go somewhere and drop me off and I can't be asked to park is what technology is democratised. What can AI do in that context? Well, in a world where class sizes are only going up, in a world where you have postcode lottery around what kind of doctor you get or what kind of education your children will be lucky enough to receive, where public provision of goods and services are becoming less good and more bearable, you might argue that things like having your own personal chatbot could be quite an interesting thing. Maybe I could be taught by that chatbot. Maybe it's like having Aristotle in mind. Maybe I could be taught by Aristotle. Now, again, this is, comes with some very big caveats, and be careful, because if you're in Iran, maybe this isn't necessarily a good thing. Maybe I don't need my, my kids being taught by this all-seeing chatbot. The point I'm trying to make is this has potential to... What about your own personal advisor? What about someone who understands your own health records? What about someone that, you know, so this idea of what things remain outside, there's lots of puts and takes around AI, but it has the potential to take domains like personal training, personal coaches. Aristotle would have taught kings one-on-one, and there's potential here for that type of level of personalization that I think... Again, the internet has never really been able to deliver on. And what about the potential downsides? So um, I think, again, the, the big issue will be timelines of revenues. This is not cheap. You can see that in the video revenue line. So it also has the potential to be very disappointing to investors if there's a big mismatch between monetization timelines and stock prices. So we're mindful of that. But again, I don't think we can unlearn what we've just seen. Right. So if, if we look back at other technology innovations, we could probably yeah. say that finding the winners will be difficult, but possibly we'll see the, the losers before we find the winners. Is that right? Absolutely correct. Always. And I think Goldman have done good work on this, but we know this to be true. Partly it's because the companies that are winners are not public yet, but mostly it's because the monetization timeline's low or shallow and then rapid once something sticks. But in that, you destroy revenues before you can create new ones. So it is creative destruction. And obviously the listed equity market is overweight incumbents. So you tend to get the destructive features first. Now, in the first wave, it doesn't really matter because like when you build railroads or you build internet infrastructure, you've got an infrastructure story here for quite a while. If you believe the CEO of NVIDIA, you're basically just starting a process of reimagining the entirety of the world's compute the computer of the world today is built around Intel and AMD, the CPU as the brain of compute. Yeah. All cloud compute is built around the CPU model. And again, this is hyperbole, of course. I'm sure there's a lot of it in there. And he's very promotional. This, I mean, I'm brilliant. But the argument is you will need to rethink the way the world is computing because every incremental workload is going to be an AI workload. And if that's true, you're talking about trillions of dollars. Of, yeah, not overnight, no one's pretending that, but the, the world will shift. So, so the semiconductor area, clouds, but mostly the semiconductor area now are where the focus is because that's much like building the railroads. And it, it will end in a bust probably like the internet ended in a bust and railroad ended in a bust. But you, you can't worry about that when you just started. I mean, we really have just started. And if you think about this, the earliest part, the early adopters, of course, are the incumbents that have read all the history books to understand the risk to incumbency posed by new technologies. So if you're Google with 90% market share of search, you have a lot to lose in a world where potentially a generative AI alternative could come along and replace you. 
how many searches have you done on your last holiday or your, you know, what would be the best place to stay if I wanted to? Well, I could just ask ChatGPT. Now, at the moment, it has no capability to do anything other than tell you the answer. But what if in five years' time, that capability is able to say, I can populate you a holiday based on what I know to be the right answer to your question. And then you can fine-tune it, of course, but how does that sound? And you say, oh, that sounds bloody marvellous. And all of a sudden, you've obviated the need for 732 Google searches. Yeah. So Google, in quotes, has no choice but to invest it. Now, of course, they're also in the lead, and that's why you can't be too bearish on Google Alphabet, because five minutes ago, they were the guys solving for protein folding. Right. So we're not writing them off. They're one of our biggest holdings, but you have to invest in the opportunity. And likewise, if you're Amazon, Microsoft, you have to invest in it because you have very large cloud businesses that theoretically could enjoy a leg up from it, but also could be at risk if you don't invest in it. So you've got this sort of forced... CapEx cycle happening here, which you and I are both old enough to know that can end in tears, but very unlikely at the beginning of something. NVIDIA is central to this at the moment, right? NVIDIA has this incredible pricing power right now. The stuff we've read says that they could be up to 80% of the bill of materials of an AI server. So very much the new Intel, if you like, in an AI-centric world. Now, the question about how long might it take, you know, we're obviously all learned that if Netscape came public in 1995, you, you had a, a very excitable period in the market, uh, which ended obviously horribly, to be then followed by being in the kind of uh, centre, wherever it's called, Liverpool or Coventry, for 10 years, and then we came out the other side. But interestingly enough, if you think about it, the PC market in the late 90s, which was the target market for the internet, were hundreds of millions of units. Yeah. But we know that ChatGPT got to 100 million users or whatever it is in two months. So the diffusion rate of all new technologies is getting faster and faster. So the risk here is that people are sitting their laurels and say, I'll have another chance to play this theme because invariably it will end in tears. But what if it doesn't? And by the way, there are six billion smartphones in the world or something insane. So what if the diffusion rate of AI isn't anything like it? What if it's not five years or ten years? What if it's two years? We can go round and round, but ultimately... Every better seems to be in a better, better shape than where the internet would have sat in a world of, of a few hundred million PCs compared to billions of smartphones. You know, you see how fast things happen now. The back end is all in place because we've got the cloud already. So the potential for disruption, I think, is very significant, which then kind of creates a virtuous cycle of investment around AI. Basically, you can't sort of stop it. It's not like driverless cars where you have one accident and everything kind of grinds to a halt. This thing has got built-in momentum. You can't really stop it unless AI started a world war or something. Regulation is one of the, you know, what's the bare case? What could derail stocks is slightly different to what could derail the AI. And I think it's very hard to derail it. So one of the big risks is a full breakdown in US-China relations. To be clear, all of the AI chips in the world are made in Taiwan. This is the most leading-edge technology there is, those chips are 95% made in Taiwan. Could we fall back to fabs at Samsung? Yeah, sure, but not before the share prices have fallen a long way. The US is trying to prevent the very leading edge chips from being shipped to China. That seems to be an acceptable level of economic warfare to both sides, but could that get worse? Of course. If the Chinese invaded Taiwan, this would be not good for us, not good for AI. And it would be plan Bs and Cs, but they would take a while to kick in. What else could go wrong? Regulation. Again, any technology that could have this profound an impact on people will have to be regulated. 
And so we're not trying to be dismissive of this risk. But if you look at the history of aviation, and you know we love to look at other historical examples, if you look at the history of aviation, regulation accelerated the reach and penetration of aviation. It became safer. People didn't die as regularly on planes. And that's a good thing. Weirdly enough, I'm not sure regulation is the risk that people pose now. I also think it's going to be very lightly applied because there's a very obvious war on here between the goodies and the baddies or the Americans and the, everybody else to make sure that you don't fall behind because didn't Putin say 10 years ago that whoever controls AI will rule the world? Those words are not going to be lost on anybody. So I don't think there's going to be big, massive regulation. I don't think that's going to derail the story. In time, once companies get comfort with the fact that Yes, if I go to Adobe and I take an image that's been AI generated, I am okay from an IP perspective yeah. because I've been indemnified by Adobe. That will increase the usage of those images, not the other way around. I don't see that as the big risk. I think that the, the biggest challenge, like the internet, will be that right now it's an imperative for companies to spend. But if the timeline to revenues is disappointing, and you can't generate value. Like, in other words, if Microsoft comes out with a co-pilot product that doesn't deliver the amount of productivity enhancement that they believe it can, they won't be able to monetize it. And then this story will be broken until something else comes along that can then restart the conversation about revenues. Because without the revenues, in the end, there's only so far that spending to defend your turf will go. There has to be value here. Now, when we look at what this stuff is capable of, it seems impossible to believe that it won't be able to deliver value. Give us some feels where you think this is all going to make the biggest impact. So the sort of feels that people are talking about, you know, Lizzie Gartner says something like a quarter of all drugs will be discovered using AI by 2030 or whatever. The, you know, you can go and find any data point you like. But ultimately, there are two or three fields that are going to be transformed here. The first one is anything that involves the human language. So what these models do, I should have said this earlier, is ultimately it's a probabilistic model. It predicts the next word. Yeah. And it can do that because it's read everything. So there are things like take my fact sheet and turn it into a 1,000 words, not 2,000 words. It can do that, and it can do it in one second. So at the moment, we're talking about models that have been trained on everything. But we will have models that will be trained on just financial data sets. And then you'll be able to say to it, is this monthly compliance with consumer duty? And judge my pros on consumer duty. And it will say you're an A minus. And so, again, we're just a year into this. And if you start training models on, I don't know, anything and everything, you can kind of pretty much get to the answer in just about any domain you want, where there's human language involved. Second one that's very exciting is DNA. This is slightly beyond my pay grade, but DNA is sequential data. So everything with sequential data, they're the two big areas. Oh, and third one is programming. Because when you code to write software, it's sequential. It's not human language, it's computer language. But if I've seen enough code, I know that when you've written blib, blib, blob, blib, blib, blob, blob, there's probably a blob, blob, blob coming next. And I can auto-complete the code. So these are the domains, not trivial, all of human language, all of computer coding, and DNA. So that's where the focus is going to be. So this must be good for productivity, ultimately. And for the first time, and this is a bit that's slightly spooky, technologies have come along and displaced humans. 
But humans have ultimately gravitated to higher value work, which is why you get productivity and why we don't have outside toilets anymore. The challenge here is, is that this is aimed squarely at knowledge work. And so, you know, imagine this, Jonathan. I've loaded up a trade today and I'm going to put a few buys on. And the machine comes back and says, Ben, I've analysed the 7,000 trades you've done and these look somewhat like the worst ones and this is why. Yes. This looks like the 73 desperate trades you had where you, if you waited seven days, your average return would be 14% better. Yeah. Mr. GP, this doesn't look like a good prescription. This looks like one of those scripts that you did on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. Anyway, we have now got a deck of about 45 slides and I would say at least a third of them are now about AI. Yeah. So this is not just another theme. This is a lens through which all of our investments must stand up. And that's a change for us. I can't just say that without giving you some of the stuff behind it. But the hurdle for being in the portfolio is somewhat changed. If I think that you're not a beneficiary or you're, if I think you're on the wrong side of the AI trade, you can't be owned. Now, not everything has to be an AI story. And when we go back and look and cut up the portfolio based on themes, on a very purist way of looking at it, we would say around 20% of the portfolio is explained by what we call the data economy and AI, which will end up being the same thing. But that's turning around and saying, well, when I think about Microsoft, some of it is AI and some of it is cloud. Some of it is productivity software that's got nothing to do with AI. And so that's at the very lowest point. If I said all of Microsoft today as a share, as a stock, is explained by AI, which is not an unreasonable statement to make, given that Azure is being driven by AI and obviously it's investment in open AI and now its ability to deliver co-pilot products and what have you, then 72% of our portfolio is explained by exposure to AI enablers and beneficiaries. And if you go further and say, we've also got a portion of the portfolio that are adopting AI, being hair shirt about this, because I'm giving you the, all of the numbers, so you, you do what you will with them. But to me, adopting AI will be like adopting electricity. Ultimately, so what? Everybody will adopt AI. But if I give credit to those names in the portfolio, then you're up to 88% of the portfolio. And some of our peers are out there saying, 100% of my tech fund is AI. So we wanted to give people numbers that they could try to marry up with what others are saying. If I explain it, if only 17% of Microsoft is actually AI, and I take that and I put it in a bucket, you get 20. If I said all of Microsoft, all of it, NVIDIA, take NVIDIA, 40% roughly of that business we think is AI. They sell chips to PCs that have got nothing to do with AI. They sell chips to Playstations and Xboxes, Bitcoin mining, nothing to do with AI. But if I took the 40%, that would go into the 20 bucket. But if I said all of our NVIDIA was AI related, that's 72%. So it's 20, 72, 88, if you want the numbers. Well, that was Ben Rogoff, manager of the Polar Capital Technology Trust. That was only one part of the conversation about AI and uh, how he and other Investors are having to react to this exciting, uh, well, potentially mind-blowing new idea that has become the talking point in the markets all this year. And the main reason, in many respects, why the US stock market in particular has powered ahead while others have mostly languished and defeating those uh, earlier gloomsters who thought that we would be in a recession already. Really fascinating stuff. And of course, you can find out more if you look at the Polar Capital Technology Annual Report. I do recommend that. There'll be more from Ben in due course. I think I'm going to use other parts of that conversation, which is really fascinating. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. We will be back again next week. 
And thank you all for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.